Hey, we're reading Leviticus. Israel has created the tabernacle, the place where God and humans can live together out in the wilderness, a new Eden spot. But in the very last story we read, the priests fail to follow God's commands. They do what is good in their own eyes, bringing in their alternative liturgy, and they're struck down, dead in the most holy place. The place where there should be life is now death. Yahweh's living room has been vandalized with death. And so what are we going to do? Well, what Yahweh says is, I need some priests who will learn the importance of holiness versus commonness, impurity versus impurity. And this is why the next part of Leviticus that we'll read are a bunch of purity laws. Now, purity laws are going to seem kind of strange to us modern Western thinkers. Laws about bodily fluids, touching dead bodies, skin disease. It feels like a random list of icky things. But for the ancient thinker, these were symbols of life and death. I am constantly living at the border of life and death. I'm a mortal creature. Becoming impure is not morally wrong, but what it reminds me is that I live outside of Eden and that I live in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be or that it could be. In your translations, you might find the words pure and impure. It could also be translated clean and unclean. What is common versus what is uncommon. Humans, their origins are in what is common. We come from the dirt. But humans are invited to transcend those dirty origins and in some way participate in the life and presence and relational communion with the Holy One, the source of all life. This is Bible Project Podcast. I'm John Collins, along with Tim Mackey. And let's talk about sex, food, childbirth, and skin disease, when you see how they're deeply woven into the vocabulary and themes of the Torah that have been on recycle over and over and over again, all of a sudden, all these features of these chapters just begin to pop with significance. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Tim. Hey, John. Hey. Here we are, rocking the book of Leviticus. Yes. As one does. The book of Leviticus. It's the third book in the Bible. It's the third book in a five-part collection of books called the Torah. Mm -hmm. And we've been walking through the whole Torah this year. And here we are. We're actually in the middle of the Torah. We are. We're in the middle of Leviticus. That's right. Yeah. It's a five-scroll collection, but it really is a big triad. Hmm. You have Genesis, first scroll which matches in many unique ways to the other end of the Torah, the Deuteronomy scroll. And then in the center are the three scrolls, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, which are bound together in a tight unity that makes it one big unit of three parts with Leviticus in the center. And then Leviticus has three parts. And the center of the center of Leviticus is the section that we're in right now. Yeah. Leviticus has three parts, which we're calling three movements. Mm -hmm. The first movement was chapters one through seven, looking at five offerings, as we call them. And this is all part of the tabernacle ritual. Yeah. And the second movement is then the center of Leviticus. Mm. And there's three kind of sections of the center movement. Yeah, it begins with a narrative, what we call Leviticus chapters eight through 10, which is about the inauguration of the tent tabernacle at the center of Israel's camp and the ordination of a priesthood that will serve in and around that sacred tent. It happens over a period of seven days. And here the priests are set apart, chosen to be the representatives of all of the Israelites before God, serving in the heaven and earth spot, which is the tabernacle. So they were ordained and set apart. And on the eighth day, so the first day on the job, is the eighth day, and they start their work of you know offering sacrifices, which symbolize Yahweh's gift of a substitute life that will cover for the sins and impurity of the people. That's atonement. They begin to surrender themselves and all Israel to God through sacrifices and offerings. But then the two sons of Aaron decide, with poor judgment, that uh, they want to rewrite the liturgy that they were just told to obey. Exactly. And so they um, take the place of their dad by offering unauthorized fire inside the tent, which is only for their dad to do right now. And they do it. And the same divine fire that showed up to bless the people and to 
like signify the union of God. Yeah, with like inaugurate. People. Yeah, inaugurate. The whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and and that resulted in blessing and joy. That same divine fire now consumes the two rebellious sons of Aaron. And by consumes them, you mean kills them. It kills them. Yeah, but it, the fire eats them. Yeah, and that's a part of the way that the story links back to Genesis three, which is all about the eating that leads to death. Hmm. And so here the fire eats them and leads to death. And the reason why this is so intense mm. and the reason why this is at the center of the center of the center mm-hmm. is because this is God for the first time since the Garden of Eden, yeah, yeah, yes. creating a space where humans and God can dwell together mm-hmm. and can work together in order to bring blessing to the world. Yep, That's the story of the Garden of Eden. It was lost. Yes. Now here's the story being represented to Israel. Mm-hmm. God is doing it though within the customs of this ancient world of sacrifices, mm-hmm. priests, yep. rituals. He's using all of that in order to help them understand a reality that he is making happen, which is to use them to then bring blessing to the world. That's right. And even a step above that, the biblical authors are using this material from their family history as a part of a much bigger mosaic that makes up the Hebrew Bible that leads to the need for an anointed representative who will do for Israel and for all humanity what nobody has yet been able to do. Mm. And the name of that anointed representative in the Torah and prophets goes by a variety of titles and images. One of them is the Mashiach, the anointed one. And the first anointed one in the Bible is... Happened right here. Happened in this section of the book. Yeah, Aaron. (laughs) Yeah, Aaron. Aaron anointed as the high priest Mm -hmm. to be the true human. Yes. Who then can enter into God's presence. Mm -hmm. And in this case, because there's still a rift, create purification and atonement for all the people. Yeah. So that all the people can then be encamped around God's presence. Right. And Aaron's sons were anointed too, along with him. And so these are two uniquely anointed ones set apart to give their lives wholly in obedience to God's instruction and commands to live by Yahweh's order, all as an image of one on behalf of Israel, but then as an image of future hope of a renewed humanity that lives by the wisdom and, and order of God. And so these, it's not just an average Israelite, you know, who like forgets not to light a fire on the Sabbath or something, and he lights a fire. Oops, I forgot. You know, it's like these are two of the high priest's sons on the first day on the job. Yeah. And so that severe neglect of Yahweh's word warrants a, a severe response. And so they die. Yeah. Those sons die by God's hand. And what they're doing is also fitting in with a pattern of humans choosing mm-hmm. to discern between good and bad, holy and profane on their own terms instead of letting God give that to them. This yeah. is the story of Adam and Eve yeah. eating from the tree of knowing good and bad. Mm-hmm. And then it's also hyperlinked to the story of Noah and his sons Yes, and Noah getting drunk and them trying to do something. Yeah, one of his younger sons inappropriately trying to usurp his father's authority or honor in the tent. Yeah, And so what's interesting is both the Adam and Eve failure story and that story of what Ham did to his dad in the tent are both being hyperlinked to in this story. And And to be clear, this story is where Aaron's two sons Mm -hmm. go in Mm -hmm. to begin the vocation of the priests Mm -hmm. and atone for Israel Mm -hmm. and they go rogue, strange fire. Mm -hmm. And we learned that they were drinking on the job. They were eating, (laughs) they were eating fruit. Well, yeah, what we're told is they go into the tent and do something there that they were not authorized to do, but only their dad was. And then after they die, their dad does not protest. Yeah which is a, a narrative signal that he recognizes that... Yeah, they did something... They did something wrong and, and they got what was coming to them. And then God says to their dad, all right... New rule. New rule, never get drunk before you come to sh- do your priestly service. <laughs> Just don't do it. Uh, and then second... I'm going to put this one in writing. So One, so that you can do your job. But then second, because you need, as a priest, to have all of your intellect on like the highest level of alert 
so that you can make separations between what is holy and dedicated to Yahweh and what is common mm. and between what is pure and between what is impure and so that you can become a teacher to Israel of all these things. Yeah. And so that opens us up into this next section of the book that we're going to talk about right now. to just think of this as ancient rituals that you need to try to understand. Mm. And there's just things that they did that because of that time in human history, here's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But all of this is meditation yes. on the bigger, the bigger story. Yeah. It's Torah, which means instruction. This is instruction for us to sit with yeah. and to realize what does it mean to be the image of God? Yeah. What does it mean for God to partner with us? And in what sense do we need yeah. to prepare ourselves? And in what sense do we actually need a representative to go before us mm -hmm. yeah. to uh, prepare yeah. us? Yeah, it's crucially important. When you read this section of the book, you shouldn't walk away thinking, okay, where do I need to go Like, put up a sacred tent and <laughs> like, find some goats? And uh, yeah. No, that's as ridiculous as reading the flood narrative and where God says to Noah, okay, so Build start <laughs> building a boat, make it the size. And n none of us would say, hmm, how do I respond to this story as scripture, right? How do I respond to what God might want to say to me through yeah. this story? Right. And none of us would walk away thinking, okay, well, I need to go build a boat in yeah, my backyard. Go get some gopher wood. No, it's a narrative that instructs me about how to respond to God when in my own life circumstances, it becomes clear there's something God wants me to do. Hmm. And so all of these stories give me case studies, positive and negative and everything in between. And Noah was one, but this story of the sons of Aaron is another one. And the story of God offering these commands about purity and impurity laws are a part of this story. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Yep. The purity and impurity laws, yeah. they come after Aaron's sons die in the holy place mm -hmm. and have to be exiled. And yeah. now... It's like, this is the ultimate crisis. Mm -hmm. The solution that God put in place is just completely falling apart. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's as if they've been invited into Yahweh's house and they just threw rebellion and neglect and dead bodies into his living room. Yeah. So now the relationship is damaged and Yahweh's living room has been, you know, vandalized with death. Mm. And so what are we going to do? Well, what Yahweh says is, I guess I need, I need some priests who will, first of all, not get drunk, and second of all, who will learn the importance of holiness versus commonness and purity versus impurity. And then this chapters the 11 through 15 of Leviticus are long speeches from God to Moses to give to Israel about holiness and commonness and purity and impurity. These are chapters that there's some weird oh, ancient laws in here. These, for me, still today, even though I really think there's amazing wisdom here, these are the most difficult chapters of the Hebrew Bible for me to read. Wow, great. They're long, they're complicated, and they are full of things that are so distant in culture and time from me. It's hard to read them sympathetically still for me. <laughs> and there's a lot of discussion around cringy stuff. Totally, yeah. So in this section, here's a quick flyover. Chapter 11 is about distinctions between pure and impure animals. And this chapter, along with Deuteronomy 14, are the foundation of the kosher food law. Hmm. Kosher food laws. That's what... Um, yeah, they're the foundation of the kosher diet of... That some people still people follow. Of Israel, Jewish people and Jews all over the world still today. Yeah. Yep. Kosher salt. There's a particular way out of the wisdom based on these chapters. There became developed in the history of Judaism all kinds of wisdom and guidelines yeah. about every type of food. Yeah. Why you can't have cheeseburgers. Yep. Why? Yeah. Because you're mixing milk and meat, for example. Yeah. yeah. So that's all begins life in chapter 11. Chapter 12 is a chapter about how the reproductive fluids 
for a woman that come out of her body during childbirth, those reproductive fluids render her ritually impure. We'll talk about that. And so there need to be a period of waiting and washing and sacrifices to purify her from that impurity. Chapters 13 and 14 are all about how people, homes, and clothing garments can be rendered ritually impure through skin disease or mold or fungus. Hmm. Yeah. These are things we don't want around. Totally. Yep. Chapter 15 comes around and it now talks about reproductive fluids again, but for men and women Hmm. in the course of uh, sexual intercourse or in the case of a woman's monthly period or for a man uh, in the course of a nocturnal emission. (laughs) (laughs) But it's again about how bodily reproductive fluids, and we'll talk about this in what follows, render a person ritually impure. Okay. So food, childbirth, sex, and skin disease. This is the subject matter of Leviticus 11 through 15. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why I said cringy. Yeah, totally. So here's what I have found. If you just read them at the surface level, you really, you'll get nothing out of it. And I got nothing out of these chapters for years. When you see how they're deeply woven into the vocabulary and themes of the Torah that have been on recycle over and over and over again, all of a sudden, all these features of these chapters just begin to pop with significance. That's one level. Another level that gains new insight is to do some sympathetic cross-cultural imagining on our part. So what we need to do is imagine ourselves into an ancient Israelite setting for how the biblical authors viewed concepts of holiness and commonness, purity and impurity, and how they specifically how they viewed bodily fluids of blood and reproductive fluids. And so I think that's where we should start, actually, because to me, this has been a huge area of learning and insight and also made these chapters really profound mm-hmm. in what they're saying. So should we go there? Some cross-cultural analysis of bodily fluids? Oh, we're going to start with body fluids. Excuse me. Should we start with? We're going to start with holiness and commonness, impurity and impurity. Yeah, let's let's understand that first. Okay, great. What does it mean for something to be holy versus common? And what does it even mean to be holy? We've talked about that. So start there. You've defined holiness as being set apart Mm -hmm. to be in the presence of and in the service of God. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's proximity and it's connection and partnership. Yes. Let's start there. And we went here already earlier in our conversations on Leviticus, but we need to kind of do it again. Yeah. So the word holy in Hebrew is kadosh. It refers to a person, place, or thing. Yeah. That has been brought into proximity or dedicated to the service of the God of Israel, who's the creator of heaven and earth, who is called throughout the Hebrew Bible as the holy one. Or in the book of Isaiah, the holy, holy, holy one, triple holy, Hmm. (laughs) the most holy one. So holiness refers to the unique, one-of-a-kind status of the one God of Israel, who it is claimed is the source of all life, being, goodness, beauty, light, the source of... The I am. The I am, exactly. And so their holiness refers to the unique, one-of-a-kind, holy, other, above-and-beyond status of I am. Mm. Here's the thing. There's also unique about this portrait of the God of the Bible is that this is a God who is so generous that wants to share being and existence and light and goodness and beauty with one who is other than God's own self. And this is the concept of creation in the biblical story. Mm. And so God creates an other who can exist in limited autonomy and freedom to just be. But that being is an invitation to become connected to the source in a relationship. And so... Is this the beginning of the idea of being common, that humans are made of the dirt? Yes, exactly, yeah. So in the biblical story, creation and then humans begin as one who is other than the Holy One, that is common, or the Hebrew word is chol. Chol? Chol. You have to clear your throat. Chol. So these are two fundamental categories. Uh, You could call them a status. Something in the biblical imagination, something is either holy or it's chol. 
It's either kadosh or chol, holy or common. Now, to be common is not bad. Mm -hmm. Something can be beautiful and good and be common. Mm -hmm. In fact, almost all creation is. <laughs> okay. But. And this word's often translated as profane. Translated as profane. Which makes it sound bad. Makes it sound, because of the connotations in modern English. But that's so, just the King James, yep, like. That's right. Deal. Yep. Yeah. That's right. So kodesh and chol. So a flower, a tree, a table, you know, is chol, common. And a human, humans are common. However, humans are unique in the biblical story because they are invited. Their origins are in what is common. We come from the dirt. But humans are invited to transcend those dirty origins and in some way participate in the life and presence and relational communion with the Holy One, the mm. source of all life. And so go through a process of what the biblical authors will call kadesh. So the, the root word is kadosh for holy. And then to kadesh means to become holy. Yeah. And there's another word that's translated there, right? Oftentimes to make holy. Does that sanctify? Oh, so we have other English words. Yeah. Yeah. We have make holy. Commonly in our English translations, it's the word sanctify okay. or to consecrate. Right. Or to hallow. To hallow. Hallow. These yeah. are all fancy words we don't use in common English. No, yeah. No pun intended. Yeah. But it means to take something that is common mm -hmm. and transform it to become yeah. holy. Yeah. Bring it in the presence of God at mm -hmm. the service of God. Yeah, totally. And that's the destiny of all humanity. Yeah, it's the calling of all humanity is to come from our material, common material origins in the biblical imagination. That's to come from the dirt. Yeah but to be raised up and elevated yeah. to status as an image of God, to be creatures in whom heaven and earth, God's presence and our material dirty origins become fused as one. And that is the process of Kadesh being sanctified or consecrated. Mm -hmm. And then would you say it's also the destiny of all of creation mm -hmm. to undergo that as well? That is how Genesis 1 frames it. The seventh day points forward to the crowning of all creation as a place where heaven and earth and God's space and human space are one in the seventh day. So being common is not bad not per bad. se, uh -uh. but it's not the ideal either. Yeah, it's a beginning point. It's a beginning point. Oh, yeah. Okay. Everything begins as common. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, maybe we can maybe think of some parables, you know, hmm. here. So these won't necessarily be good ones. Ah, this is an inter interesting one. So my boys are young, eight and 10, and we have in our house, our house isn't huge, but on the main floor, the kitchen, living room, dining room are all kind of one extended big space. Mm -hmm. And then off to the side are a couple bedrooms and a bathroom. And right now their bedroom is in the upstairs attic. They have like an old finished attic. You have to kind of crouch mm -hmm. at certain points. But the downstairs bedroom we've converted for years, all the years they've been growing up is their playroom. Mm -hmm which means it's just a constant mess of Legos and Star Wars action figures. So this thing started about three years ago where when they go in there to play, they close the door. <laughs> this is our space. <laughs> yeah. And particularly with they close the door and we can hear them through the door acting out stories. Mm. And they're in there in their imaginative world. Yeah. And the, I mean, it's hilarious. Mm. Often I'll stick my little like phone camera under, uh, underneath the door. Just to try just, to see it. And just to record them because they're like literally, they're acting out movies and mm. stories and anyway. But what we've noticed is when I open the door to like tell them, hey, like dinner's going to be ready in 10 minutes, they both freeze and just look at me. <laughs> they stop. Like they were caught. <laughs> and then I close the door and then they start acting again. Mm. And so- The door is like a portal. Yeah, it is. And- when the door is closed, it's like a holy space. It's dedicated to their imagination. <laughs> to their play acting. And it becomes another world oh, wow. for them. Okay. But the moment that door is opened, it's like reality breaks in. Mm. And once they hear and see, you know, Jessica and I out, you know, making dinner or something, and they can see us, you know, from the angle, <laughs> and it just somehow it breaks the illusion. Yeah. And it's no longer holy. Interesting. So there's something about that space is uniquely dedicated to their imaginative story worlds. Mm. And when it's sealed off, it's like protected mm. and- Closing the door purifies the space. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it separates it as a dedicated space, yeah. separate for the, we'll get to purity in a second, but okay. just once they close the door, it's separated as a holy space. Okay. 
And they don't act that way out in the kitchen. They don't act that way out in the living room. That's fascinating. Yeah, it is. So for the moment, that's what it is. Now, if I were to consecrate the living room and just say, boys, I want you to see this as a part of your imaginative world now. You can take over the living room. That would be a consecration or a sanctification Mm. of the living room. Okay. The space is now... You'd have to bring the Legos out there. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to like... (laughs) Make sure it could be closed off. Yeah, totally. Yeah, put up some sort of screen or drape drape or something. Put up a drape. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, but here's the thing. Let's say Jessica and I were to get like a little camp stove and decide we're going to set up kitchen and dinner in the playroom tonight. Mm. And we just like waltzed in there and started making pancakes on a little, (laughs) you know, a little camp cooking frying pan or something. That would be defiling. The word would be defiling or profaning their holy space. Mm. And it's a verb connected to, remember, whole is the word for common. Whole. Whole. And to defile or profane is halel. It's the same to make common. Same letters. To make, to treat as common. Mm. So when you see the word defile or profane in the Bible, what it means is you're taking something that's dedicated to the space for one in the Bible, for Yahweh, but you're treating it like it's an everyday common space that belongs to you. Mm. So to be common isn't necessarily bad. It's a starting place. Mm-hmm. But to take something that has been set apart yes. as holy. And treat it and as treat common. treat it as common. That's, that's not good. No bueno. Yep. So the existence of these categories establishes an order. Mm-hmm. And where the value or like an ethical issue is at play is not whether or not you're holy or common. It's how you cross the boundaries Hmm. between holy and common. So Aaron's sons were set apart as holy, but then they just introduced their own ideas and how to do the liturgy, and they just tromped into the holy space. And so they made what was dedicated for Yahweh their own, Hmm. and so defiled or treated it as if it were their own, and so made it common. Hmm. So that's all this language of to sanctify, consecrate, to hallow, is to take something common and make it holy. And then the reverse process, to take holy and treat it as common, is to profane it or defile it. So these are fundamental categories to the biblical authors. In other words, there's no book of the Bible that explains it the way we're trying to explain it right now. It just is taken for granted. Yeah. Which is how you know it's one of these cultural assumptions. So that's the first step. Okay. Okay. That's holiness, commonness. If something is common, it can exist in one of two conditions, pure or impure. Okay. (laughs) So, and here, my chart might help here. Uh, No one else gets to see this, but. No. So holiness, think of holiness as being this category off to the right. Ah, yes. Okay. And then when something is in a state of being whole or common, it can exist in one of two states. And think of this as like a condition, okay. the way we might think of like a health condition. There's only one way to be holy. Yeah. There's two different states of being common. Common. Yep. Okay. Pure and impure. Yeah. And so it's very analogous to our concepts of sickness and health, hmm. which is why the biblical authors use sickness or health as very common metaphors to describe purity and impurity. Okay. So the word pure, in fact, pure has become the word that I prefer in almost all of our English translations, it's the word clean. Oh, right. Clean and unclean. Clean versus unclean. Yeah. Which I understand why. It's a venerable tradition, a way of translating these Hebrew words, but I think it doesn't quite get us all the way there. Okay. But pure and impure also have their own baggage that are not helpful in, <laughs> in English too. All right. So the word pure or clean is the word taher, to make pure, and then to be impure or to be unclean is tameh, taher and tameh. Taher and mm-hmm. tameh. Yeah. So essentially to be pure is to exist in an ideal state as a common object, person, place, or thing, in ideal state. Healthy, whole. So you're not consecrated yet. You're not like mm-mm, mm-mm. in the presence of God, being mm-hmm. the priest, no, being has, the image of God. It nothing to do with being in the holy space. 
this is just like if you're life in the world mm-hmm. as the common man, you're a dirt creature, mm-hmm. but things are good. You're not sick. Yeah. Your body's working. Yep. That's correct. A pure. Yeah. You exist in a state. A tahir state. You, you exist in a tahir state. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. But to exist in an impure state means that you have come into contact with a force or a substance or an experience that has brought you to the boundary between life and death. Mm. And when you touch things associated with death, you go from being pure to becoming contracting impurity. Impurity is a lot like a contagion, something you contract by touching it or eating it Mm. or experiencing it. Mm. But as we're going to see in these chapters, the things in ancient Israel's culture that were associated with death and mortality were certain animals, Mm -hmm. reproductive bodily fluids, skin diseases, fungus, and mold. When you come in contact with those things, it makes you... Impure. Impure. Yep. I started thinking of purity as a sense of just wholeness of like, Mm -hmm. my body's working, I'm not sick. That makes sense. Yeah. But then you threw in like, I could be impure because I touched an animal that's in this category. Yeah, that's right. So it's not just like how my body is, Mm -hmm. but it's also like what I've come in contact with. Yeah, that's right. So think of purity as a status that's a lot like health and if you've, I mean, we're living in the middle or tail end, Lord have mercy, Lord <laughs> willing, of a global pandemic. So we kind of, these categories are really familiar to us. Yeah. Where I'm healthy, I might feel great, mm. but maybe I've been around somebody. Ah, uh, yes. Who has the virus. And so for a period of time, I have to seal off mm-hmm. and I treat myself and act and others treat me as if I yeah. have the virus. Yeah. It's very similar to these concepts here. Yeah, it's not just about you being healthy. To be pure is to exist in a state where you are healthy and in an ideal state, and you haven't come into contact with anything. So in some way, you could think of this as ancient sanitary practices. Mm, Yeah, that's right. That's how it would appear to us. It appears that way. Yeah, that's right. And some of them, you're like, oh, they were onto something there. Mm -hmm. Some of them are like, who cares? Yeah, that's right. Like touching reproductive fluids. Yeah, like like that's not going to harm yeah, anyone. That's right. So this is a good example to say all cultures have these, what you might call them like taboos. Yeah, right. Taboos. And there's a lot of overlap. In fact, there's a Hebrew Bible scholar, Mary Douglas, who most of her scholarly career was dedicated to trying to do cross comparisons in anthropology across cultures present and ancient as a background for illuminating the purity and impurity laws of Leviticus. Mm. And I never thought books on that topic would be interesting to read, (laughs) but she's such a good writer Mm. that her first most important work was called Purity and Danger, which just makes you want to pick it up. (laughs) But, uh, and as I learned so much. Interesting. So we talked about this years ago when mm. we made the holiness video. Oh yes. Okay. Yeah. And you brought up this really wonderful taboo that we have that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yes. Okay. So that's important to say some of them make intuitive sense in different ways to different people. Yeah. But usually some of them seem irrational if you don't inhabit the home culture of the taboo. Right. Because <laughs> a lot of our taboos around sanitation yes. make sense. Mm-hmm. Wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. Yep. Makes yeah. sense. Totally. Eating a meal in the bathroom would feel weird to us. Yes. And this is what culturally. I was going to bring up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is yeah, that yeah. you said, look, like it's a taboo. You don't go and eat in the bathroom. Yeah. That place is dirty. Yeah. When you're done with that, you wash. Yeah. You have your little washing ritual. Yep. To like enter the real world. Yes. So you wouldn't bring food in there. And you brought up, but isn't it interesting? We brush our teeth yes, in t- the bathroom. Yeah, totally. And then leave the toothbrush sometimes out on the counter yeah. permanently. Yeah, just hanging out. Hanging out. In the unclean space. And and you're telling me <laughs> that if you flush the toilet with the seat up, oh, goodness little me. water particles aren't floating up. Fecal matter on your toothbrush. Floating in and coming onto your toothbrush. But we don't care. For we don't sure think about it. that is happening. Yeah. Like for sure that is happening. Yeah. And we don't think a thing of it. Yeah, totally. You know? And now like hundreds of people are like, mm. <laughs> not keeping my toothbrush out on the counter anymore. You know, we got we have little caps, little oh, yeah. plastic caps. People we do that. Put over the heads of our toothbrush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am very laissez-faire when it comes to germs. 
<laughs> and um, I think... Uh, Actually, well, let's flip it, though, because mm-hmm. also it's irrational to think that somehow we wouldn't eat in the bathroom. That's irrational because somehow we think the kitchen is more clean mm. than the bathroom. Well, that makes sense. The saliva, <laughs> all the stuff. I'm just saying, like, my kitchen sink and the way my kids treat it <laughs> is no more clean than my bathroom. They'll spit in it. They'll bring in. Yeah. They'll be digging in the backyard yeah. and they'll come rinse mud off right. of some nail they sure. found. And yeah. like, you know, when you really think about it, like we can't protect ourselves from all the germs, no. but we have rituals yeah. that help us think that we are and, right. and also help us. Correct. But. <laughs> <laughs> so the point here is that every culture has its own taboos around cleanliness. Yeah. And some of them are usually grounded in what we would might call physical realities, but Often there are irrational elements too. Yeah, often they're just they're symbolic. gut reactions yeah. that at the end of the day are symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. They're symbolic. Yeah, because you wash your hands after you like use a toilet, mm-hmm. but you know what's dirtier than a toilet seat? Mm. A public keyboard. Yes, of course. Oh, yeah. People pick their nose, pick their ears, rub their eyes. and then Or go, someone who hasn't washed their to hands. The, go to the library <laughs> and like use the internet. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Or a public doorknob. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I'm like, totally. So, I mean, like. That's right. And COVID era has taught many of us to be more aware of these things than ever before. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that same irrationality, inherent irrationality, it should humble us when we read these chapters of Leviticus. Mm. And we say, okay, I get the thing about not touching corpses of dead animals. Yeah. I get that, that that would render somebody impure. Yeah. But what are reproductive fluids? Like, what's that about? That's normal to us. And that's easy to get to, I suppose. I mean, it's kind of icky. Yeah. But but I think what we have to get underneath, we have to say, okay, the way every culture slices the pie is going to be different. Yeah. I think the animal thing is probably the hardest to sympathize with. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But even there, there's an intuition of like some animals are icky, gross, unsanitary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Okay. But underneath all of this, yeah, this is an opportunity for mm-hmm. let's just jump to the conclusion yes. before we just get into the weirdness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is an opportunity for ancient Israel mm-hmm. to on a daily basis, yes, yes, in everyday life, yeah, like have their imagination shaped by this idea of life and death. Mm-hmm. That they're kind of on the boundaries. Yes. Like life is on the boundaries between life and death. And at yeah. any given moment, you are in one of these states. And why is that important? Why is yeah. that a significant thing to to obsess over. And yes. such, I mean, they're obsessing over it. Yeah, know? yeah. No, they're obsessing. Yeah, that's right. So maybe let's think of it this way. Within the biblical story, all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, especially with the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1, Yahweh is the source of all life, all life, order, beauty, goodness. Yes. The Holy One. Second thing. In his light, we have light. Yeah, that's right. So anything that is existing in a state of death, mortality or dying of, and here I'm trying to inhabit the imagination of these laws here, of having some sort of physical malformation, a body that's in the state of disorder, decaying, rotting flesh, a signs that I am a mortal being that is dying. This is all a state of being that is not the way that it's supposed to be if I'm in proximity to Yahweh. Mm. If I'm in proximity to Yahweh, I'm going to share in his holiness, in his goodness, in his beauty, and his life. Which should mean health. and Yes, it will um, mean eternal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on one side of the spectrum is Yahweh's life and holiness and a state of order. And on the opposite end of the spectrum is death, chaos, impurity, etc. And so every Israelite, saw themselves as somewhere on that spectrum, never static, always moving towards one end or the other by what they ate. But it's binary, whether you're pure or impure. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So it's not like a spectrum. Oh, I understand. Okay. Yeah, I got it. It's binary. And you're either, yeah. You're either being thrust into an impure state. That's right. And then there's rituals to get you back. Mm -hmm. So there's this constant like day to day, you're like, okay, I'm 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 in a pure state. And then boom. All of a sudden, I have to like deal with a, a dead body. That's right. This is so important, and this is crucial for understanding this whole thing. This was a Jewish scholar, Jonathan Klawans, in his book, Sin and Impurity in Ancient Israel. 
this is where I first learned the concept. And, you know, it's not his concept. It's right there in Leviticus. Being ritually impure is not sinful. It's not bad. It's not a moral failure. It's not a moral failure. You enter a state of ritual impurity when you bury your uncle. Yeah. Which you should do. Yes. Yeah, totally. You become ritually impure every time a husband and wife have sex, Mm. which is a blessing. Part of the blessing, right? It's celebrated in the Song of Songs. Mm. And it's a place where, through Yahweh's mercy and generosity, new life can be. Um, Whenever a child is brought into the world, Mm. there's a lot of bodily fluids that render the mother and and the midwife and anybody else involved ritually impure. When you hold a baby that's newborn Mm. and the fluids on it render somebody ritually impure. When you have a skin disease in a boil that breaks out and begins to spread, that renders you ritually impure. So nobody's done anything wrong here. Mm. These are all fluids, substances, or experiences that bring us to the border of life and death. Mm. And what's the strange one might be childbirth, because you're like, it's life. But that's just life, yeah. But childbirth is an experience fraught with the danger of death. Yeah, It's a life event that brings both mother and child to death's doorstep. Yeah. In a way, a successful childbirth and a healthy mom and child, you know, after labor is a miracle. Mm. It's a deliverance from death. Think of how they would have imagined it. And it still is today, a deliverance from death in many ways. So what we're talking and reproductive fluids, think of it this way. These are fluids that in the ancient imagination, these are the fluids, if they mix together, male reproductive fluids and female reproductive fluids, they mix together. The male reproductive fluid in Hebrew is called zera, the word seed. Mm. Oh, which also is uh, the Greek word for seed is semenos, which is where we get our English word semen. And then on the flip side, so that's the seed. And then in English, we have all of these words for like the egg, you know, mm. that the egg produced in the ovaries. Mm-hmm. But the word ovary comes from the Greek word ovum, which is egg. Mm. Like it's the egg maker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The seed so, and the egg. Yeah, all of our language about this is agricultural mm. imagery mm-hmm. about seed and eggs, but it's all about the genesis of life. Yeah. And so if you're leaking these fluids. Oh, that's showing that there's a problem. Yeah. So this is why a man who mm. leaks these fluids mm. from his body outside of sexual intercourse or a woman in the course of her monthly period mm. leaks these fluids, it's viewed as a sign of dying. It's like you're dying. Hmm. You're leaking your life substance. Yeah. And so it makes you ritually impure. Hmm. It's not wrong, hmm. but it is a sign that I'm a dirt creature, that my body is... It's not dying. wrong in the sense it's not a moral failure. It's not a moral failure. But it points to a sense that there's a corruption. Yes. If what it shows is that I'm living outside of Eden. There's something wrong in which I'm inhabiting. Yeah. Within the biblical story, because we're reading this, yeah. Leviticus, within a scroll and a story that began with Genesis 1.1, what I was told was that humans are capable if somehow our way of existing could be transformed, that we are creatures capable of becoming one with the life and presence of God and living forever. Hmm. But that's clearly not the state that we're in. We are right now outside of Eden in a state of death and dying. And anything that's associated with death and dying, reproductive fluids, out of place, childbirth, even though it's a new life coming into the world, it brings both mother and child close to death, skin disease, and then certain animals. Those are all signs of the disorder and decay and mortality of our lives. And so it's so important to come to terms with that reality. Yeah, yeah. One way to frame this is it is so important that there's a whole ritual around it. Yeah. And there's a whole yeah. categories 
and making sure you understand when you're in and you're out, mm-hmm. all to just kind of like shape our imagination towards mm-hmm. reckoning with this state. Correct. Yep, that's right. So all of these rituals and taboos were a daily reminder. And for us, they function as Torah instruction and wisdom because they become narrative images that give insight into what it means to live outside of Eden. So all of our lives is permeated with reminders mm. that we are not in Eden. And in the biblical imagination, you know, in its ancient cultural context, it's all these things, that these laws. And so it will be cool to jump in and look at some of them, but mm. tell me about that. What's the wisdom? What's the Torah, ah, the okay. teaching? All right. Like, what am I supposed to take about yeah. these things into my life? Am I supposed to be hyper aware mm. of the frailty of creation, like, and am I supposed to create some sort of rhythm that allows me to... Yeah. Well, let's first do, um, so to go from an impure state, if you're in an impure state, it's important to know it's not morally wrong. Yeah. It's temporary. Hmm. It's as long as the condition lasts. And then when you want to go from a state of impure back to pure, these are called purification rituals or cleansing rituals. Yeah. They involve taking a bath. Yeah waiting a period of seven days, yeah. and then offering a chatat offering in the tent, which is a purification offering. Hmm. So <laughs> This is so funny, living through the pandemic, mm. because we have all three of those. Yeah, we do. We totally. like wash our wash hands, hands. <laughs> totally. we like quarantine, mm-hmm. and then we like provide the, like, mm-hmm. the test that says we're pure. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. <laughs> totally. And then the reverse process, to go from a state of purity to impurity, is the verb pollute, Mm. yeah, pollute, or to make something impure. So what's the wisdom here? So the wisdom here is that I am constantly living at the border of life and death. I'm a mortal creature. And becoming impure is not morally wrong, but what it reminds me is that I live outside of Eden, and I live in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be or that it could be. So To come out of an impure state into a pure state means that I am ready to go enter the holy place. It's not wrong to be impure. What is morally wrong in Israel's culture is to enter into the holy space when I'm in an impure state. Mm. When you're in an impure state, you're cut off from the holy space. You don't go into the outer courts to do sacrifices. You can't come near. That's right. There's a law in, in the book of Numbers that says before Israel set out, in its wilderness journeys, they made sure to get anybody who had the skin disease or had touched a dead body or impure fluids in the last seven days, and they had to go to the border of the camp. Yeah, They couldn't travel inside the camp itself. They had to go behind. And that was their way of honoring this, that when Yahweh is in our midst, we remove whatever is associated with death to be far away from the hot spot of the source of all life. Mm. So to be in an impure state is not morally wrong, but it is a sign that I am cut off from the source. I'm far as far from life as you can be. Mm. And so to enter into a pure state is to go one step closer to being fit to be in the holy presence. And it means that I'm restored to a status of health and life. But to be pure doesn't mean you're in the holy place. It means that you can now go into the holy place if you want to. Mm. And then that, to go from a pure state to entering into the holy place, that becomes sanctification or consecration. Hmm. So here's our spectrum. You go from being impure to becoming pure, and then once you're pure, you're eligible to become holy. Hmm. But holiness and purity are not the same thing. Right, okay. Yeah. To become holy, you need to be in a pure state. Sorry, that's not the question that you asked me, though. I'm just realizing. No, but that's (laughs) important to get at the question, which is, yeah, what is the wisdom here? Mm -hmm. When I'm reading these purity laws, am I thinking about Mm. what are ways for me to mark some sort of boundary Mm. Mm -hmm. of like, here's one thing that came to mind. Mm. I've been noticing, and a lot of people have noticed this, and we don't know what to do with it, is that social media is Mm. toxic. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah. It's so so great. It's so fun Mm -hmm. to like, know what people are up to and to share ideas. And and the social media that I find myself drawn to specifically is Twitter because Twitter is a very five social media. It's like, give me your ideas. <laughs> give me all your hot takes. Apart from any relational commitment, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's no energy required to be nice to somebody. 
it's just like here's my here's my thought. That's here's a thought. Here's a thought. Here's a thought. That's, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, it's perfect for Enneagram five. It's an Enneagram five. Instagram social... is perfect for Enneagram fours. I guess. <laughs> yeah, totally. anyway, exactly, okay. right. exactly. But you spend any time in there, mm-hmm. and there's just this toxicity mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. just not being nice and taking sides and yeah. being yeah. grumpy and pointing fingers and kind of just starting to be mean. And anyways, it yeah. actually changes my mood. Mm-hmm. It like affects me. You notice it. Yeah. Or probably your, your wife knows. And I'm noticing it. <laughs> it more and more. <laughs> yeah. That like, I like it, I'm drawn to it, but then I like just get grumpy. Mm. And so it's almost be interesting for me mm. to think about that as mm. one of those boundaries. I go into there, like it's in a way... I'm now entering into a state that's like broken. Yeah, sure. And it's going to affect me. Yeah. And I might need some sort of ritual to kind of cleanse myself of that. Yeah, sure. In a way. Yeah. Like to get some separation. And by having a ritual Mm. or having that mentality, it helps me really respect what I'm actually after. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Another type of analogy that's more closely tied to like a physical food or body. And this is so relative to your social location. But in my relational network of families and in the culture of my home, sugar Mm. has become something that's a real subject of like critical reflection. Refined sugars. Refined sugars, yeah. Yeah. And so um, Jessica's, my wife's been on a mission over the last decade to really make refined sugars unpalatable yeah. to us by not having them around and not using them. Yeah, interesting. And so I've come to this strange place where... It starts to feel kind of unclean. It start, yeah. Like I used to love, whenever I was doing a house project, like on the weekend, you know, to the house project, and I would go to the hardware store, and I would just love to get a Snickers <laughs> and just like power up on a Snickers bar yeah. to come back and like whatever fix the locks on the doors or something. (laughs) And yeah, this happened to me last year at some point where I had the Snickers on my way home from the hardware store and I just felt sick. Mm. And I almost didn't enjoy the last half. Mm -hmm. I was just like, ah. Mm. And and then I was talking with Jessica about it because usually I would not tell her when I would do this. Yeah. And so I told her about the Snickers experience and she was like, yeah, your body is actually becoming unaccustomed to this thing that's not good for it. <laughs> but it takes a while. Anyway, I was, that was such an interesting experience where I was like, I grew up on these. Yeah. I love these. Mm. And now it makes me sick. Mm. And I don't want it now. So anyway, each person could tell their own story and I'm not, not trying to throw any judgment on Snickers bars. But refined sugars have become a category in your mind that now when you yeah. have them, yeah. you kind of feel like you're in another state. I do. You've entered into a new I feel, state. Yes, exactly. And I'm like, this is not the version of myself that's going to bring my best yeah. to the world. Right. And I think that's the category here. I see. That, that's an experience that maybe we can relate to. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to think about, you know, there's a connection between obsessing about being in that state mm. when you go into vocation to do things that are quote unquote holy, mm. connected to God, mm. in God's presence. It seems like there is real wisdom there, which is if you're going to like go preach on Sunday morning, (laughs) it'd be good that you're in the right kind of mind frame. Okay. Yeah. No, I guess one hopes this out of their spiritual leaders, if you're a part of a church community, that they... Not that they weren't eating sugar per se, but like the things that like... Yeah. That they're like healthy, well-adjusted Yeah, you 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 end up expecting it, I suppose, (laughs) in a way. Yeah, Yeah, which is a dangerous assumption. (laughs) But um, because people are people, you know? Yeah, within the biblical story and within the melody, there's this desire that God has to share his own life and creative power and the possibilities that come with it and the responsibilities that come. Yeah. What else is the theme of the image of God except God wanting to share Mm. divine power and life with one of his creatures? But it's going to call that creature to a level of responsibility and wisdom about what are the conditions that lead to true life and flourishing for a human. Right. And so these impurity laws were, again, it's not morally bad. Right. It's not morally bad to check. And and that's why, like, you know, touching reproductive fluids, if you're a midwife, you know, giving birth, 
it's not like the Snickers bar at all, actually. Because um, it's not, right? It's not bad for you yeah. to like touch a newborn baby covered with bodily fluids. It's not spiking your blood sugar. No, no, it's not. So, but it is a fluid that reminds you that this life came out of a moment and experience where this all could have died. All this beautiful life of the mother and the child could have died. Mm. And so for a period of seven days, or in Leviticus 12, it's 33 or 66 days, Mm. this was such a holy moment. Mm. I was such at the border of like a critical moment of life and death that I am going to sit apart for big chunks of time to mark this moment as a moment where I came near to death. And by sitting apart, that just means you're not doing the sacrifices? And well, What it means is I'm going to abstain from going near to the holy place mm. for a period of time. So what's the wisdom there, though? Because we wouldn't say like, hey, don't go to hang out with your community. Mm. But it is a unique experience of God's power. Actually, in the Christian liturgical tradition, this is essentially what the practice of Lent is about. Mm. And it just so happens we're in it. that while we're sitting well, here recording this, yeah. we are in the period of Lent. In the year 2022. Yeah, but it's a, a way of withholding yourself from certain pleasures, not because they're bad, but because the immediate satisfaction of a pleasure is a part of a larger problem with the human condition, mm. <laughs> which is meeting our desires and pleasures in our own wisdom and our own timing mm. in ways that are destructive to ourselves and other people. Mm. Not every desire and not all the time, but often. And so I'm going to choose one pleasure. So you're saying fasting, in a sense, is wisdom from these yeah. laws. Yes, and fasting is associated with grieving and mourning and death. Mm. In fact, you would often dress up like you're dead. <laughs> Shave your head, put dust on yourself, wear sackcloth. Yeah. Fasting is a way of existing in a state of impurity for a chosen period of time. And what it does is it forms me to one regard as so precious when I get to be in a state of purity, but yeah. also it increases my appreciation for the time or place of holiness. Yeah. So for Christian Lent, it's the days, weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday, hmm. which is the ultimate holy event yeah. of God's life invading earth. So in, I guess in a way that it's what Lent is about. It shapes you into a kind of people who are hyper aware of my own mortality, but also makes you more appreciative of the holy time and space when it graces you. Oh, thanks for asking that question. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's cool. That makes me want to do Lent, actually. Mm. Mm. I never do it. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I've done it once or twice, but like... Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, it's cool. Yeah, I know that for some people, the liturgical calendar, the experiences, maybe something from their family of origin or whatever. Might, yeah. But the intention of these liturgical traditions is to retell the biblical story with your body mm. and your time and your calendar, your whole self. The purpose of Lent is to annually have a season of time where you mind yourself that you're dying. Mm-hmm. And that part of the reason that we're dying is we constantly meet our desires in our own way and in our own time. And it's killing us. So we withhold our, our desires from ourselves. Now with Lent, there's you're not actually really separating from the community. Mm. Where here, there's, mm. a, there's a separation. There's a like... Mm. You're impure, go to the outside of the camp. Yeah, it's a little different in that way. Here's the thing. We need to bring different parts of our experience based on your social location and merge them all together to try and imagine ourselves into this ancient Israelite context. But for them, these were all one thing, to exist in a state of impurity because of a skin disease or because I was touched by my own reproductive fluids or whatever. But it was right now I'm going to set apart I've been in touch with something that brought me close to the force of death. I'm going to sit aside for seven days. And this could have been the attitude you bring to quarantining yourself during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right? Like it makes it a... Mm. Anticipatory, you mean? Uh, just the, the category of just ah, like, I see. I'm not going to just go quarantine because I'm supposed to, mm. health reasons. Like I'm actually going to allow this to be a sacrament of oh, sorts. A time of mourning or a yeah. time of grieving or a time of recognizing yeah. my own mortality. I'm actually separated from everyone. I'm going to recognize yeah. mortality yep. and frailness. And yeah. this is the world that I'm living. This is mm-hmm. really marking that more. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. One last thing. 
being impure is contagious. Mm. In other words, if you're around somebody who's in a ritually pure state, you can make them impure by touching them. And yeah. so being ritually impure is contagious. Holiness, which is the opposite end of the spectrum, is contagious. So when people come into contact with the holy foods of the temple, that holiness get transferred to them. Hmm. But, you know, it could be dangerous, for example. But being in a pure state is not contagious. When you're in a pure state, you could either get leveled up to holiness by contacting it, or you can get leveled away from holiness towards impurity by touching it. And so impurity and holiness are the two contagious states. Hmm. So what is fascinating and here just, this is a good, like get your friends together on a Friday night and read the gospel of Luke out loud. Mm -hmm. And you just watch. Luke has intentionally placed in all of his healing narratives, the people who would be populating the list of Leviticus 11 through 15 uniquely. Mm -hmm. Jesus touches dead bodies. He touches people, a woman leaking oh, yeah. menstrual blood. Mm -hmm. He touches people with skin diseases. He goes into the homes of non-Israelites who would not be eating kosher. Mm. <laughs> um, so it's truly remarkable. Mm. Luke has intentionally shown Jesus as the Holy One of God, which he's called mm. in Luke Acts. He's called the Holy One of God. And he is God's contagious holiness moving out one by one, just checking off the list of mm. people from Leviticus 11 through Those 15. things that would make someone impure yes. when Jesus comes in contact with yes. it. Yes, touching them. Luke, and then Luke always highlights, he mm. touches them, mm. which would render a normal, pure Israelite impure. But in the case of Jesus, his contagious holiness actually transforms them. Mm. It turns the impure thing into pure, mm. which makes them fit for the presence of God. So this is a cool way how these chapters might seem so extreme and bizarre, but they actually illuminate how Jesus saw the world yeah. and why he moved towards the kinds of people that he did. It's because he knew these chapters well and they informed his view of the world and he didn't think they were bad. Jesus didn't overturn these systems, but what he did was use his holy power to bring people into a state of purity, to bring them into proximity to holiness. So that's a cool way that these connect to Jesus. These chapters in Leviticus are a part of the unified story that leads to Jesus. Yeah, that's cool. And that's a part of how. And that makes me realize that if I am going to start to imagine my own modern purity rituals, <laughs> it has to be grounded in this reality that to be in relationship with Jesus mm. is to be made pure. Yeah. Lent is interesting because once a year leading up to his death, mm. you imagine mm. like, what if I didn't have that? Yeah. He's gonna die. Yes. And not until Resurrection Sunday do you celebrate. Nope, that's not the reality. Yeah, totally. But we don't have to live in that day in and day out. Yeah. We get to live in this reality of being connected to purity that's contagious and holiness that's contagious. Yeah, contagious holiness. Yeah, that can make even the parts of my life that had been touched by mortality or suffering or mm. death can, yeah, transform them, make them whole and pure. Yeah, these are... <laughs> not to be confused with whole, <laughs> which is common. Which is common. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. There. There you go. There's no way to tie that up in a bow. But and we didn't read any of them. Yeah, we didn't actually read any of these passages. Well, listeners of the podcast, you have some helpful categories now that can help you go read them with greater understanding. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bible Project Podcast. Next week, we're exploring the very center of Leviticus, which is the very center of the Torah, the Day of Atonement. When death has been introduced into the very heart of the tent, which is the source of all life, we need to deal with the problem there. We need to deal with the pollution that's taking place in the tent. And that's what the Day of Atonement is all about. This chapter is in the section that's at the center of the center of the center of the Torah. So we know we're close to the heartbeat of the message of the Torah when we enter into the tent on the Day of Atonement. Today's show is produced by Cooper Peltz, edited by Dan Gummel and Tyler Bailey. Our show notes by Lindsay Ponder, Ashlyn Heiss, and Mackenzie Buxman have provided the annotations for our annotated podcast in our app. Bible Project is a crowdfunded nonprofit. We exist to experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. And we can do this along with you all for free because of your generous support. Thank you so much for being a part of this with us.
Hi, this is Peter Vaughn, and I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hi, this is Jason, and I'm from Singapore. I first heard about Bible Project five years ago when one of my youth leaders sent me the hyperlink. I first heard about Bible Project from my pastor at Story Philly. I use Bible Project to be a theology nerd and a Bible nerd. My favorite thing about Bible Project is the Read Scripture series with every book of the Bible. I use the Bible Project to teach and preach the Word of God in my local church. It's theologically sound and so easy to understand. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're a crowdfunded project by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, classes, and more at BibleProject.com.